Violence per se has never been my bag, except personally. But in pictures, as and I would like to uh, try to at least portray it on screen as it is. Uh, I've failed, and I've succeeded. And, uh, but all those pictures you talk about basically are morality plays. I've broken a lot of fences and noses. I just do the uh, best kind of a job I know how. And, uh, but there are certain people who are filmmakers and there are certain people who are not. That's all. about movies uh as jack said this is the good the pod and the ugly i'm ken he's jack and we're joined by thomas midnight chaos eternity chaos morning chaos eternity chaos noon chaos eternity chaos evening chaos midnight we're talking uh harmony kareen this week right yeah this is part two of our uh four by four summer where we're watching uh four movies by four directors that we each individually pick i did frankenheimer we did two parts of that it's a lot of fun and Harmony Kareen uh, was picked by Thomas. Yeah, for our four-part Harmony. So oh, yeah, like- this week we're going to talk Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy, his first two films. Yeah, do, do we just want to jump into it? Well, who well, is who is Harmony Kareen? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give know. a little bit of background there. But uh, maybe even before I do, here's an interesting parallel for those. Uh, you know, it ties back into earlier part of uh, the history of The Good, The Pod, The Ugly. Uh, so here I have Multnomah County Library, of course, shout out, got a book on Harmony Korean, all of his interviews, uh, up until the point of making, uh, spring breakers. Here's, uh, a interview with Emmanuel Berdu, the French critic. Um, Harmony, you've always considered Clint Eastwood as one of the best directors and have said that he is one of the most American filmmakers. I would like to ask you about him because Harmony Korean and Clint Eastwood, aren't names one would uh, spontaneously associate. And then Corinne responds, there's no obvious connection between our films, but I feel that they are deeply embedded in a specific kind of American vernacular, a certain kind of pathology and vibration. My films are about parking lots, street lights, dumpsters, abandoned houses, backyards, dirty dogs, and the smell of bacon. His movies from the 70s and 80s, like Honky Tonk Man, Pell Rider, and my favorite, Every Which Way But Loose, and even Thunderfoot, I'm sorry, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot really tapped in the same vibration. He's an artist. So, wow. Clint, you're listening. You got a little shout out from Corrine back in the late 90s. We should get them both on the podcast. They could watch each other's movies and talk about it. I'm sure Clint well, would love Gummo. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did say like, uh, okay. Uh, later on, different interview with John Pearson, he says, it's surprising to hear you cite uh, as an influence uh, the orangutan movies from Clint Eastwood. Oh, every which way but loose. Yeah, but it's really true. I mean, if you think about how strange it is, you have this American icon who during the 70s made three films back to back with an orangutan. That's really interesting uh, of a conceptual thing. But yeah, were there three orangutan movies? Do you think Harmony Kareen watched the unreleased 
either which way you go. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Wow. Deep dive there. Jeez. Yeah, thanks. That's probably That's my cool. best moment. <laughs> Maybe in your whole life. <laughs> hey, Thomas, so you picked Harmony. It's Kareen, right? Yeah. Um, why Why did you want to pick him and, and why these, these two movies in particular? Yeah, well, maybe even these four movies, ultimately. Um, I've There's something to uh, Gummo um, in the time that it came out, in the time of my life when it came out, so just a a year or two younger than Jack, that really changed how I saw the what could be done with film. I hadn't seen any Godard. I hadn't seen any, like, uh, Cassavetes. But there was something new and exciting. And one of the reasons I watched some some of it, aside from um, being a film nerd, uh, was that I had earlier watched Kids, which I think that this movie is an interesting, like being, it's interesting that it's kind of in conversation with it, and like his youth and the general milieu of, of film at the time. Um, but yeah, this film and Julian, uh, Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy, I think are a good uh, pairing. I think that they're like spiritual uh, siblings, maybe mm-hmm. even pregnant uh, with the other's child. Uh, <laughs> and then what's really fascinating is when Corinne comes back after um, Mr. Lonely and Trash Humpers, you get this whole other aesthetic. And so I think it's it's going to be really fascinating to look at these pairings. If, knowing that yeah. I only had four movies, I wanted to do two of... Uh, Gummo and Julie Donkey Boy, and then jump over to the, the Florida uh, duology, which might become a, um, a three-part film series of Corinne's experience in Florida. So, yeah, yeah. yeah but these films are, feel like they are of the South, and they, um, yeah, there's there's things that I just hadn't seen that spoke to me in ways growing up that were unique. Jack and I were talking about Corinne's uh, movies, and and. Our experience is really similar, but at different ends of his career, where um, I remember working in movie theater when kids came out. It was it was very controversial, uh, produced by, uh, at the time, somewhat notorious um, director, Gus Van Sant. Uh, and I found kids to be so noxious and borderline unwatchable, um, like, like you're watching like a, a pedophile. Well, what's interesting is Weinstein picked it up maybe to be able to break his contract with Disney. So like, there's this whole like weird business drama going on in the background of that film as well. So I, I avoided Kareen after that. I had such a, a bad experience with that movie. I was like, I, I have no interest in, in what this guy does afterwards. Yeah, um, it's like his store was both tied to it and... He was trying to fight against it at the same time. So uh, Hami Karin, um, just to give context, was born in 73. He would have been just uh, like 19 whenever he meets Larry Clark in Washington Square Park. Uh, Karin had got into NYU early and um, would drop out after about a year. He's out skateboarding in Washington Square Park with some of his friends. Um, and some of this has kind of captured that kind of skater culture in New York in Beautiful Losers, a documentary that came out in the early aughts mm-hmm. uh, that has Harmony Corinne in it, um, along with others, uh, more visual artists uh, of like a static medium. But anyway, uh, he meets Larry Clark. Corinne's uh, been running around with uh, eight, uh, 16 millimeter films in his backpack and he hands one to him. 
they end up working out a partnership where Kareen's going to uh, write kids, which he does in about three weeks. He had no, uh, Larry Clark had never directed anything. They seem to have like financing coming in because people wanted to have AIDS movies made, movies about AIDS. They had independent funding for this. Favorite subgenre. Yep. <laughs> well, Harmony just said to like in his mind, he was like, "Yeah, I can, I can do that. I just only thing I know about AIDS really is like I don't want to get it." Um, <laughs> and so he writes what he kind of knows, which is the street culture of skaters and um violence and drugs uh that he that's been attractive to him uh since he was living in new york um with his grandmother after uh leaving tennessee uh to be able to go to nyu they like kids is this hot script and eventually like they uh, fly him out to la and try and get him to have an agent and he basically walks away from everything and they shoot kids and then kids is huge as far as like critical reception in Sundance and the, all the controversy around it, it's graphic depictions of teenagers written by a teenager, by a man who photographs teenagers, <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's it's like the grungy version of, of powder. But I think <laughs> I think the the interesting thing though is that uh, admit, I don't know he didn't direct it; he wrote it. And he he wrote a movie that he needed to write a screenplay for. It's not like he wrote it so he could direct it. And he ended up falling out with the next project, Ken Park, that he was supposed to work with. Uh, That's not an order, Ken. Don't drive while you're doing the podcast. Uh, (laughs) Lurie Clark did a movie afterwards. uh, There was supposed to be a collab with uh, Corrine called Ken Park, and he drops out of it. Um, He disowned it later and claimed he never even saw the the final, final version, right? Yeah, he... He says a lot of interesting, fun stuff. That's the pornographic movie that that Clark made. Explicit. I mean, it has your name in the title, so I'll let you speak to that. (laughs) So anyway, get back to my experience with kids and not wanting to follow up and watch any more green. Jack watched Spring Breakers and he had it the same experience, but kind of in reverse, didn't you? Yeah, Spring Breakers is definitely not unwatchable, though. It's just really bad. But anyway... I'm very glad that you picked Harmony Corinne because I never, like, Gummo is an infamous movie. And I've always kind of wanted to see it, but I never would have if I wasn't forced to. Same. And I'm glad that I have. Yeah, this is a really fun pivot from John Frankenheimer to Harmony Corinne. I mean, it's a hard pivot. Yeah, he's going to have some notes later, I guess, whenever we talk about the last director we covered, which would have been Frankenheimer and how he would redo. I'm looking for have to say about that Thomas. (laughs) so yeah i I think um part of the uh harmony corinne is that he was young when he was making these things and he seems to be a prodigy a lot largely self-taught um and just a big film nerd but not in the same way that um this is the era where you have like rodriguez and uh soderbergh and tarantino all coming uh to have uh Kevin Smith, uh, all these indie filmmakers. Same bucket as people who know how to make movies, please. Hmm. <laughs> well, did you read the Roger Ebert interview in 95? With who? Harmony Corinne. No, I did not. Okay. he write, uh, Ebert writes, Harmony Corinne has seen the future of cinema, and it is him. Nobody else is as young, as bright, as original, or as uh, inspired. Certainly not Quentin Tarantino, who is ancient at 35. 
<laughs> wow. Drop quote. I mean, he's 15 years older than me. That's a totally different generation. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, let me talk. I mean, just a little bit more about Harmony. Um, he like his big influences are probably like uh, Godard, uh, Cassavetes, uh, and especially he re- regularly talks about Alan Clark and how it, watching some Alan Clark films changed his understanding of what cinema can be. I was wondering if any of you guys had. I've only seen Scum. I'm wondering if you guys had seen any Alan Clark. So in the the late '90s, the Northwest Film Center in Portland, Oregon, shout out. Uh, they did a, a series of Alan Clark films. So um, I've actually seen quite a few of them. Mm. Um, very, yeah, I, I, I can see that. Having you see the overlap? Them. There's a certain yeah. grittiness and like how scenes come in and, and, le- and exit and just naturalness to some of the acting. Yeah. Or amateurness at other points of some of the acting, maybe. Yeah, I've only seen Elephant, but the, the good Elephant, not the Gus Van Zandt Elephant. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, another thing interesting about these movies that you're picking from him is that uh, there is a period in between this episode and next episode, like we did with Frankenheimer, and Mm -hmm. some of the reasons those movies might not have gotten to the level that would be included here is is because he had uh, a lot of issues with um, drugs. So there's almost like an era where almost a kind of artistic self-exile just because he couldn't get over what he was on. Yeah. I mean, he, there was a, there's a tie in to, um, uh, upcoming season. Um, so, and it, it's glorious to watch. If you ever watch his interviews on David Letterman, I Harmony Corinne had, had came on three times and he was scheduled for four times. Um, the first time being after kids, second time after gummo, the third time after crack up the race riots, his novel, um, and then the fourth time, I don't know what he was coming on for, but he got kicked off, like permanently banned from the late show with David Letterman. Do you guys know what this is? You know what I'm about to say? I do. No idea. Yeah, go for it, Ken. Uh, he was on the show with Meryl Streep and Letterman, as he's wont to do, was going up to Streep's dress, um, green room or whatever to, to greet her, welcome her to the show. Um, knocked on the door, said Miss Streep, opened the door. Uh, Streep wasn't in there. Harmony Kareen was, and he was going through Meryl Streep's purse. Uh, Letterman, according to Letterman, when no he, way. Letterman mm-hmm. said, uh, that stuff back and, and you're out. Never came yeah. back to the show. So That's badass. Which, which part? Uh, Kareen going through her purse. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he, he spends basically, yeah, he spends like half a decade. There's, uh, his house mysteriously, he, in 2001, two houses that he's living in mysteriously burned down. Yeah. It's probably not that big of a mystery. And he, he lose like, uh, he apparently was working on a screenplay called what makes pistachio nuts that completely burned. Uh, but also, there's some. If you watch those David Letterman interviews, you get a sense of, especially of young Corinne, um, of how he, uh, he likes to mix fact with fiction. Just like you get a little bit more of a documentary uh, sense from some of his early films mixed with the fiction itself. Mm. Or um, and he doesn't really care about like there's he. Uh, it's not like he's doing it just at the expense of a joke. He's just, there's things that just seem to be boring to his ADD mind that he's not interested in trying to like have shallow conversations. Um, right. And all he really, really wants to talk about is filmmaking. And so all the other stuff just seems kind of like bullshit to him. 
after Julian Donkey Boy, big depression, not able to make some films. And I don't think he would again until like Trash Humpers or Mr. Lonely, whenever he finally comes out of rehab and spends like a few years in France. Like, uh, oh, like Frankenheimer. Whoa. Parallels. You've seen Gummo quite a few times, Thomas, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. This was my first viewing and it was Jack's first viewing. And I, I have been dying to hear Jack's thoughts on Gummo. Oh, well, do we want to maybe let's explain what Gummo is first? Oh, yeah. You want to do the letterbox um, synopsis of Gummo? Go ahead. Prepare to visit a town you never want to call home. Solomon and Tumblr are two teenagers killing time in Xenia, Ohio, a small town that has never recovered from the tornado that ravaged the community in the 1970s. That's it. That's a synopsis. And their time killing cats and sniffing glue. Sounds about right. Yeah, it does sound like a like a I don't know buddy comedy at some level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, th- those two characters are kind of like the uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the Gummo universe. That's right. Yeah, um, they're they're our, our entryway and to to branch out to all those other characters. Yeah. So Thomas, this is the movie that when we're uh, uh, chilling with Rydog, this is the one that you said had like one of the most unique structures you've ever seen right i don't know if that was ryan who said that i uh i think yeah, i don't ryan. yeah i think ryan uh said that but i get you confused often yeah you yeah. just look so uh, you're not yeah it's it's white people they all look the same to you jack i understand so what'd you think jack me yes uh i don't really get it but it's definitely good um I get the appeal maybe, but I don't like Ryan. I think this is one of his favorite movies. Like he gave it five stars on the letterbox app. And I, I think it's definitely, it's definitely something. I mean, there's something there. Okay. It's definitely unique. It was, it was my first viewing too. Yeah. Uh, I I was a bit surprised how much I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, some of it I actually love. Some of it is is horribly grating, and almost like um, you know somebody play acting in grime and muck. Um, yeah, but yeah. you know most of the movie is is utterly fantastic. Um, and someone like Kareen, a lot of the uh, the visual aesthetic of this movie uh, has permeated pop culture since it came out. Definitely. Um, and I'm, Are I mean, you saying the Bob's of... Burgers is influenced by this movie? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, it, Bob's always cooking up cats. Well, I think more of his daughter's ears. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. That's true. Uh, Thomas, what do you think? About this Obviously. film? Hate it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, terrible. No, it's it's one of my favorite uh, favorite films. And I think, okay, so give to, to give some context, this is the same year as Face Off and Con Air which we've covered uh-huh. absolute power midnight in the garden of good and evil. Both great Armistad and Jurassic park too. Um, and if you compare this film to those other films, you're it's, he's doing something different. You could say like, uh, I, I think that there's, well, he has a quote somewhere where someone's like, if you got $60 million to make a movie, what would you do with it? Okay. Yeah. If, if somebody were to give you $80 million to make a movie, what would you do, Harmony Corinne? I'd probably make 20 little movies. Or maybe not. If I had a movie that was worth $80 million of story, 
but it's rare that I think those stories acquire $80 million to tell. And I think that this film talks to, as, as well as uh, Julian Donkey Boy, especially with under the Dogma 95 banner, uh, just that at the time, movies just weren't doing things that were interesting. Not that they are now. And uh, this was something that blew my mind watching it originally and continues to this day, just how well, just that he's able to pull off putting up the images that he wants to see and making right. something that's that's uh, captivating um, and without having uh, to worry too much about um, plot. Like I think he likes to quote Godard a lot about um, maybe you should have a beginning, middle and end, but not necessarily in that order. Classic. Right? Classic. Yeah. So I think that there's, there's things in this movie and I, as we go through it, I guess you can't really talk about it through exactly as a plot, but you can definitely go through the scenes that are in it Yeah, that you, um, have never really seen before, never will see again, and have to live in the environment of this movie. Um, and I'm glad that this thing exists because they're, to me, it's an eminently quotable movie. Everything from I want a mustache, damn it, to uh, ain't got much meat on them. Like, there's, uh, this is, we've entered somebody's mind and played around in their aesthetic for about an hour and 30 minutes. And I like it a lot. Definitely. I do think what you said about someone playing around in the grime, though, is maybe a little bit true, because there are definitely parts of this that, like, I, I think he is emulating Herzog in both of these two movies, especially Strozek. And uh, with him showing like the kind of uh, poor, maybe like trashy side of uh, America and blending fact and fiction, which is something that uh, Strozek does really well. And Mm -hmm. I think maybe a little better than this, because I feel like one of my criticisms of this movie is like, I feel like every other scene is great. And then there are scenes that because some of the sequences feel so real, there are definitely scenes that feel a little bit staged. And I think probably that was intentional, but it became a little bit grating by the end to me. There were points of the movie, and uh, for the most part, I think this is great, but some of it reminded me, um, not reminded me, but for one, I have no idea why this came to mind when I was watching it, but it was um, what would happen if the, the Charlie from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia (laughs) Um, brought in like a was wearing a beret and came in with a pair of rabbit ears and a camera and said guys we're going to tennessee to make a movie (laughs) and then it the credit goes to the gang makes an avant-garde movie right and some of the scenes were (laughs) like you could almost picture the artistic discussions that they would have in shooting some scenes um or or even garth marenghi some of them right um that's not the whole is it just the huffing glue uh and maybe the illiteracy probably the one part that is is laughable um is the end where the kid in the rabbit ears comes to the camera holding the dead cat it it almost seems like a parody yeah of of an avant-garde i was not a big fan of the ending sequence at all that's what really brought it that's not that's not the end of the movie though it feels like it should be the end right with the music swells and isn't it buddy holly no um that's earlier when they're on the bed yeah. yeah. Um, at the very end, it's crying. And then they cut from that. And that's not the end of the movie, though. That would have been the end of most of the other movies. Instead, you get the Jesus Loves Me sequence with shaving the eyebrows, right? 
Oh no, going to bed. Uh, you have the, yeah. uh, and then that just plays over, and then goes to death metal. <laughs> that I, what? But it's already I, to the credits with with the woman singing. And uh, then, I laughed yeah. out loud when that happened because that just seemed too ridiculous. Like that was too much. That was the gang makes an avant garde movie. Yeah really i don't know i mean it, it, but if you look at the avant-garde movies that are that, okay maybe let's not use that word let's say um sundance film movies that have come out in the last 20 years they kind of feel like there's a formula right and i don't feel like that formula i i think that this is sui generis it doesn't feel like it, it has um ties to trying to make an outsider film i think it just is an outsider film yeah well, um, I'm curious because I, I, I don't spend a lot of time watching avant-garde movies, even though usually I like them when I do. But you watch a lot of Matthew Barney's work. Yeah, I'm a big Barney head. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the comparison because that that's kind of a similar um, avant-garde art film um, sense, isn't it? Yeah, but he, he yeah, he is, I think as full of himself or maybe definitely more full of himself than Harmony Corinne. I am. I don't think maybe either of them have enough self-awareness sometimes, like especially uh, later Corinne with uh, spring breakers, which we'll talk about next week. But I do think Matthew Barney is like, just loves himself more than it, he loves anything else on the planet. No, I I think that fall. Uh, so another interview, Ray pride film movie critic asks Harmony Corinne, how do you react to critics who drag out the dreaded self-indulgent label to describe Gummo? And Corinne says, how can an artist be expected not to be self-indulgent? That's the whole thing that's wrong with filmmaking today. 99% of films you see do not qualify as works of art. To me, art is one man's voice, one idea, one point of view coming from one person. Self-indulgent to me means one man's obsession. That's what great artists are going to bring to the table. So he's calling himself a great artist. Oh, yeah. So he's awfully, <laughs> awfully full of himself. Oh, no, well, he definitely is. Yeah, I don't mind that. I love I love self-indulgent art. Obviously, I love Matthew Barney. Um, and I think that this movie totally works for the most part. It's just it's just those things like like uh, Jesus loves me and then cutting to death metal at the end is just something where that's a bit too much. Like, I get it without that. You don't have to add that on top of it like that. It's almost like we've talked about with Spielberg, like not trusting your audience, but maybe he like does think he's making because it is such a great movie. And if he's making it for stupid people that aren't going to get it, then maybe he does have the right to be that obnoxious about it in your face. Interesting take. Yeah. Well, a little bit on the background of the film. Um, it was shot in Tennessee and not for tax credits. Uh, it's because that's where he grew up. And so he decided to go back there and shoot. Um, he said that he wanted a kind of homeschool kind of aesthetic running throughout the film uh, and have that also in the language between the sisters, um, including Chloe Sylvania. This is, uh, she was in Kids. She was uh, Carmody's girlfriend at the time of this and Julian Donkey Boy. And they would, they would split up after Julian Donkey Boy. Mm-hmm. Um and you would have the uh, the cinematographer, uh, Jean-Yves uh, Oscafer, pardon the 
butchering of that last name. Um, guy who did some Gus Van Sant films at Goodwill Hunting. Uh, I think did Rounders. Um, he was, uh, this is one of his first American films. And I think the first time he had ever been in, in Tennessee. And what Harmony saw was interesting was that it, he ended up capturing through the eyes, of the cinematographer's eyes, like almost like a third world experience. Mm. Um, so there's a, Seeing everything that he grew up with, with Harmony grew up with at, in fresh eyes is one of the great things because of, of having that distance. But uh, they you talk about grunging things up or putting like dirt on the lens. Like they actually had to, in, in many of the scenes indoors, clear out paths. And the crew rebelled at times and they ended up having to buy some hazmat suits um, for them to go inside the houses when they were filming. Jeez. So it's not that they actually took bugs away, right? That, that's, <laughs> that's, the most horrifying scene I've seen in a movie in some time are the bugs crawling out of the holes behind the paintings. Oh, my God. Uh, I, I, that was the most uncomfortable I've been watching a movie in some time. It was disgusting. Yeah, I think yeah, the whole building of that scene happened. So Harmony's only restriction, really, um, was that he turned in an R-rated film. Like, can it be worse than R? And so the MPPA kept giving an NC-17 for what he what they were calling nihilism. And he said, like, how absurd can you get? I had to recut the film seven times. And one of the big things he had to cut out was that same scene where the little boy looks behind the paintings and all those bugs come out. Uh, he was sitting on the his sister's lap. You get the camera pan with the bug bites on his legs. Uh-huh. Um, and then... Out of nowhere during the scene, the kid grabs the um, can from his sister's hands and it looks like he's getting high off of it. And uh, they totally well. had to cut that. But Harmony felt really bad about that because it's, it seemed like whenever he, the way that it was shot and the way that he was, uh, was able to cut it together it looked almost like the kid was nursing on a baby bottle um, whenever he was huffing. So, yeah, that's uh, that and a few other things were limited down to be able to get the rated R. Um, rating that's Ooh. bullshit that well <laughs> i didn't know that they could give something a nc-17 for nihilism yeah there's very little nudity in it there's nipples uh on women and really? that's a and there's a, there's some <laughs> violence against animals i guess you don't quite see on screen right they whip yeah, a dead cat but the, the dead cats were real because it looks like at least the no. there was like a white cat so that looks th- this is really, really real this is funny because when i was watching the movie i was like there's a couple of them that looked real and then there was a shot that lingered on one of the cats that was hanging and i said oh that they they spent a lot on making a fake dead cat and they're getting their money's worth by that extended shot just like they do whenever they do like a set decoration for a period piece and they have the crane shot so you can get all the money in the shot. yeah or like the three angles of the car exploding. and i i was a, a lot more uh calm about the movie after that because I, I don't like seeing dead animals nobody does but then when i realized it was all just a put on and it was obviously fake that was okay dead yeah, animals are well, not fun i mean all the great filmmakers i've said this on the podcast before and you said Hot you can't take. say that but most of the great filmmakers you can't have, say that most of the great filmmakers have killed animals during their movie productions that's just the truth um well no animals were harmed during the filming of this according okay, to i mean it's um, we yeah. have yet to make the connection with the the Dennis Hopper. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to next talk about the cast because you have yeah. Tumblr, who was recruited from watch uh, uh, the lead older 
of the two was recruited from uh, Harmony Crew watching a Sally Jesse Raphael episode, right? Sure. Was it like my kid or somebody died huffing paint? Yes. And so Corinne's joke was, well, if this guy survived that, he must be really tough. So I want to work with him. Kind of a Herzogian <laughs> thing. Uh, Mark Gonzalez, the guy, the skinny guy who wrestles the chair. Uh, he's also in the Beautiful Losers documentary because he's an artist and a professional skateboarder who was pretty badass in the 80s and 90s. And then you get who? But coming out of retirement, first appearance since 1978, out of the blue. Oh, Linda yeah. Mans. Uh, her, yeah, the the tap dancing sequence with him working out with the tape together cutlery in the basement to Madonna. Such a great indelible scene. The second you 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 see that scene, you're like, well, I'm, I'm probably not going to forget this one. Yeah. Even if I never see this movie again, twenty years from now, I'm going to remember. And um, then and then her feeding the kid in the bath, which is the most like disturbing thing I've ever seen in my yeah. life. Yeah, what's amazing is the two, I mean, she's great in it, right? And as soon as I was watching Out of the Blue, her voice hasn't changed somehow. And so I was immediately like, oh, shit, that's the woman from Gummo. Right. Watching Out of the Blue. Um, But yeah, the two most, I mean, two fairly disturbing scenes. Nope, nobody's doing any drugs. Nobody's whipping any cats. Like there's, uh, there's no woman being taken off of life support. It's... Just the kid being a kid. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Fairly astonishing. I have a question for you, Thomas. I don't know if you'll know the answer to this, but do you know if Harmony Korean has ever read the 1962, maybe, novel The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea? I'm going to look at his Goodreads page here in a moment. No, I have no idea, Jack. What are the parallels? Jack? Well, that's that's a book about a small town in Japan and a bunch of a bunch of youths killing time um, by uh, there's a very disturbing sequence where they capture a cat and like very graphically kill it. Um, and the structure of it, like leading up to the two kids taking the woman off of life support and it being like almost an act of mercy in their eyes or something uh, like a very like, like youthful perception of like a, someone living a miserable life like that. There's a, a the ending of the novel is Spoilers. pretty similar to that. I won't, I won't spoil anything, but it goes in a very similar direction. Okay. So I, that's what I was thinking watching this. I was like, this is almost like a very loose adaptation of that book. I don't know if you ever read it or not though. I mean, I, he seems to be just tear through things as far as his media diet. So I wouldn't be completely surprising. How did it come across your radar, Jack? I wonder if there's a connection there. I because I love Yukio Mishima, the the author. I think okay. his politics were completely correct, <laughs> and I am a big fan of the coup that he staged. <laughs> uh, Jack is uh, smirking while he says, that. <laughs> "Don't cancel us." <laughs> is he the one who performed Harry Carey? Yes, and it was okay. awesome. <laughs> I don't know if uh, Harry Carey and being described as awesome is, happens too much. I had another parallel when I was watching this movie uh, uh, is uh, David Gordon Green. His first movie, George Washington, which came out a few mm. years after this, also about little kids, um, very much indebted to his his favorite director at the time, Terrence Malick, the way he made the movie. George Washington is quite good. But I, I was really interested in that movie because I know that when Green made it, he wanted to have like a timeless feel, which is why 
none of the uh, the kid actors have like t-shirts with um, superheroes, movies, or singers on it. Because uh, I came across this Korean interview where he said about um, the the fashion of the people in Gummo that America mm-hmm. is all about this recycling, this interpretation of pop. I want you to see these kids wearing bone thugs and harmony t-shirts and Metallica hats, this almost schizophrenic identification with popular imagery. If you think about it, that's how people relate to each other these days through these images. Whoa. And it's interesting to, it's interesting, the -hmm. careers, um, how Gordon Green has obviously gone on. He's a very commercial director. He can pivot from smaller budgets to big budgets to TV, his cinematic heroes and a lack of interest in pushing the art form. Maybe, uh, Harmony Korine's artistry is is a little more avant-garde. Uh, but Gordon Green has a pretty deep filmography uh, with some great movies and some terrible movies. Uh, Joe being on the good side, right? Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Joe. Yeah. He made those two great Halloween movies as well. Yeah. The second one's terrible. They're both terrible. That was the joke. Oh, yeah. I like the first one. Yeah. Well, you're dumb. Uh, but they're about the same age. They both come from the, the South. Um, a lot of their early films are indebted to, you know, their version of the South. Um, and I, I, I just think it's interesting how their careers, how different they are. But they also have uh, a James Franco movie as maybe their most popular Ooh, at some point. Interesting. With, uh, Pineapple Express and Spring Breakers. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Gordon Green does a lot of TV work, too, which yeah, keeps him and- busy. Yeah, Corinne Dittmore does uh, art installations and yeah. occasional like music video. Mm. But I think Corinne's limited work is more influential um, than a lot of directors who have made, you know, four or five times as many movies. Yeah. Uh, particularly the, the two movies we're talking about today. Um, I, I'm not sure how they would have looked to my eyes in 1997, 99. Um, but today, I mean, you can see how, how far the influence has stretched into tv and movies definitely yeah there's even that uh there's a there's a song by that um soundcloud rapper i just learned that today courtesy of google spoilers and, um, for a later segment i tried to play it a couple times but it wouldn't play on my phone so i never got to see it oh really yeah was it takeshi 69 i don't care is that his name i don't know probably i don't know anyway he had a song called gummo yeah what so what is a gummo does anyone know, or is it like a Reservoir it, Dogs thing? It's, it's like, a, uh, I mean, Harmony's said a few different times. I'm on a first name basis with him. I call him Harm. Harm has said a few different times that it's the uh, fifth Marx brother. Oh, that's right? right. That's right. On the Letterman interview. Probably. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have a little bit more on Julian, how that got titled. But yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one to figure out. I was reading on the Wikipedia. I think there's a good story behind it. Oh, uh, did you, did you, do we mention Janet Maslin calling Gummo the worst film of the year? What? And she said, when it comes to boy wonders, exploring the cutting edge of independent cinema, the buck stops cold right here. <laughs> Jesus. It's like, a, it was like a $3 million budget. It, it didn't recover its cost in theaters. Um, but what, name name one better accordion movie. Okay, Prometheus, Idris Elba, and Prometheus. Never mind. Answer my own question. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> uh, Godfather. I was thinking uh, maybe there's a Fellini film probably with an accordion in it. He plays an accordion in Strozek. 
Oh, that's right. Probably not a coincidence. Actually. Probably not a coincidence. Wow, you're putting it. a lot of parallels in there. Strozak is a great movie. Yeah. That is for damn sure. Uh, so is Gummo. Gum, yeah, it's it's good. I, I think I don't really see... I'm really interested if Ryan's on next week or maybe just in real life because I can talk to people outside of this format. We're not trapped in this room. Eh. Yeah. Have you tried leaving? <laughs> but... um. I'm interested to see why Ryan loves it so much because I guess you do too, Thomas, but like, I don't find anything like there was one particular sequence in it that I thought was like brilliant, which is the harmony Corinne's scene on the couch. Really? And That's my least favorite scene. Probably. What? All right, let's do this. Okay. So <laughs> here's the things that some of the things I really like about this film. Um, uh, I like the collage with voiceover, uh, voiceover being done in a way that I hadn't seen at the time when I was a kid. Also, um, all the just the mixture of uh, documentary with fiction that he leaves mm-hmm. the camera running, and you get things like the two brothers punching each other in the in the kitchen, which is completely uh, after they had gone through his script. So this movie, he says that he wrote seventy five percent of it which is more than for Julian Donkey Boy, like 75% of it was to the script that he had written. But scenes like that, or just when you leave the camera rolling, you get this, like, what do you do whenever you're bored? Well, you just start throwing punches at each other. And that's exactly what you're capturing with this film. This film feels like summer in the South somehow. And I've never seen like the the death metal and the way he cuts someone um, riding a bicycle. There's two, uh, the two friends riding bicycles together. Uh, it, it captures the sense of being a kid riding a BMX bike down a street. Like there's a a realism that is um, like a spiritual realism in this movie, which I just, it captures things that uh, growing up that I haven't seen on film before. And since like killing cats, we didn't necessarily do that, but I could see like people in my neighborhood doing that if they're going to get money to buy milkshakes. Right. Well, not not the uh, yeah, not the carpenters do that like that uh, that airplane glue. Do you have any of that stuff? <laughs> Too bad they didn't have a store there that could combine the two milkshakes oh. and glue. Hey man, I'm just the idea man. <laughs> you guys figure it out. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, my least favorite I think scenes in the film are the ones where uh, the acting fills a little forced like uh whenever they sell the cats and the guys in uh like trying to cash them out for it whether they want it by the cat or by the pound like that yeah. guy's performance is just a little stilted it feels a little bit like a garth merengue performance yeah <laughs> a dark place um and uh where the kids are counting the the dollar like the chocolate bar salesman the, I think they're twins. They come out and they're ca- counting the money and like, oh, we're going to tease the yeah. girls. And it's like, okay, uh, I like the lines, but it feels like they're saying lines that somebody else gave them versus the kids who were the two cowboys who were just cussing. And uh, Harmony was like, oh shit, these kids can cuss like that. I'm going to put them in the film. Right. Yeah, that, so, that scene is pretty astonishing. The the Watching the kids cuss and say, like, it smells like a pile of bullshit um is great uh the, the scenes that are a little bit more scripted and people can't quite deliver the lines are difficult for me and that includes harmony corinne shooting himself oh i'm sorry harmony corinne uh on uh on film 
filming, filming himself. himself on on a uh, on a couch with uh, the uh, Jewish black midget, right? Or I'm saying dwarf, yeah. Jewish black dwarf. But you like that scene a lot, Jack. That was, I think, my favorite scene in the movie besides uh, them taking the woman off of life support. Um, I don't know why something about Harmony Crane's line de- delivery I just found like tragically hilarious. And also he is like one of the sweatiest looking people I've ever seen. <laughs> so I, I don't know. I, I love stilted, um, awkward line delivery like that. Like you find a lot of that in Herzog's movies because like uh, you were saying with Corinne writing 75%, like when you read Herzog's uh, scripts, they're very much like half of what you get in the movie. And then the rest is just like leaving the cameras rolling or like finding random interesting people wherever they're filming and just like literally filming their lives and mixing fiction with reality. Um, and I don't know, I something about the line delivery, like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Monotone is very, very interesting to me because it's so different than the scenes that are obviously improvisation or not written. There's an article by Nick Castilian on the 20th anniversary of Gummo, and uh, he actually, in one paragraph, does a pretty good synopsis of the movie. Better than Letterbox. I should just copy and paste this. The film is set in Xenia, Ohio, in the aftermath of a violent tornado, an environment established briefly in the film's opening. This film exists in a liminal space caught halfway between a dystopia and a stagnant Midwestern town. Throughout the movie, Kareen strings together a series of dark vignettes, together through the actions of Solomon, the film's adolescent protagonist and narrator. It's pretty good. Yeah. 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 That covers it. Good job, Nick. Other than we could do. Yeah. I and mean, we've been talking about this movie for almost an hour. And we just read that and given a and thumbs up or it. thumbs down. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a thumbs up. Thumb, it, thumbs up for me too, Gene. It has like, it has a tone that I think is great, but it's clearly not fully formed yet and i think i guess we'll talk about that with his sophomore film when we get to julian i donkey boy. i think you and i may may agree holy on on julian Cow. donkey boy uh it. yeah but uh thomas thank you for picking kareen i'm i'm really happy i finally got to see gummo and uh i can give up my anti-kareenness from my experience with kids you can like stop protesting outside his house i can stop protesting you can outside stop my burning house. his houses down <laughs> <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, ah, just kidding. Good one. <laughs> no, we all know it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> <laughs> My goddamn lipstick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, wonderful experience. Um, I, I, I'm going to probably remember a lot more of the movie than I would normal movie that I would watch. I don't know if I'm necessarily going to watch it too many more times before my untimely passing on Tuesday. No, yeah, the spaghetti eating scene alone is just fucking disgusting because the spaghetti looks stale and cold. The bath what? water is yeah, let's drops it off the bar and, and then the keeps eating it. it. Disgusting. Oh man. So uh, I think it might be Letterman, one of those interviews. Though I watched him recently, I don't recall saying that. Like uh, one of his interviews, he says that his aesthetic is that piece of bacon that's taped along the yeah. uh, the tile in the bathtub and the first two, three times I watched this film and never saw it. And now I am on the hunt for it every time I watch it and it blends in because the bathtub and the grime is just so gross. 
that you don't recognize a piece of bacon that's taped like uh, shoulder level with uh, Solomon. That's how the whole movie feels. Well, I mean, there was a lot of complaints of him like uh, exploiting or taking advantage of some of the people that live in these spaces. Um, so in, in my job, the last 10 years or so, I visited a lot of houses of a lot of different people. Um, and this movie and the next movie, um, Kareen is definitely tapping into something that exists that doesn't normally get much of a spotlight in American culture. Yeah. So uh, very much applaud him for that. And I, I never yeah. felt like he was necessarily a few times, maybe. Yeah, this though I think that that's one of the things I just hadn't seen before was, and I think that whenever we were watching kids as skate punks in San Antonio um, growing up, like we're like, oh, that's a little bit more extreme than what we go through, or but like it's not complete fantasy, and it's not like a Hollywood, it's not the Spielberg effect of us um, watching it. Uh, I remember. Um, so uh, a friend of ours had a half pipe. We built a half pipe in his backyard um, because his parents didn't care because it was, it's a pretty massive endeavor and it took up almost all of his backyard, but it was dead grass and like dog shit anyway. So we, we built the half pipe um, and uh, we'd go over there and skate and like crash there and wake up the next morning and skate again. Um, and one morning, uh, one of my friends was like, he was stealing some of the cereal from the house and, and eating it uh, before the other dude woke up. And the dude asked him something like, uh, he was like, Oh man, you're out, of, you're out of raisin bran. He's like, we don't get raisin bran. He's like, nah, I just ate the last of your raisin bran. You're out of it. And he's like, no, we get like cornflakes. Oh my no, God. No, 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 <laughs> So <laughs> yeah, like uh, that you can capture something that's kind of hidden from the coastal elites who are making mm-hmm. these films is, is great. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't get a lot. I mean, the Coen brothers always got that complaint that they were being exploitive or making fun of the people that were in their movies. And I've never gotten that from them. And I don't really get that from Kareen. I think he's genuinely invested in them. Yeah. And I think the hard part was like kids coming out before and being seen as like sensational. And then he's, it, there's yeah. a there's the stink of that on this film, unfortunately. Um, whenever it came out, that's what this film. <laughs> yeah, this but. film had uh, those wavy lines coming off of it in multiple places. Those stink <laughs> lines, like in a comic book. Yep. But this yep. goes a little bit into the um, on those charges of exploitation. Goes a little bit into the next film, and I just want to put it out there before we do some Google reviews and um, how Frankenheimer would have punched up this film. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, this is from an interview again. Uh, his appointment of non-actors in Gummo, particularly the casting of a Down syndrome sufferer in the role of a retarded teenage prostitute, led to inevitable uh, accusations of exploitation. This is what Corinne responds to that with. I think that the notion is of itself ridiculous. For a start, it suggests that some people with handicaps are too stupid to know what a movie is. Is it exploitation to use someone with an illness to play someone with an illness? Or is it exploitation to get Dustin Hoffman or Tom Hanks to fake it? I mean, you won't see any slobber on Tom Hanks' face, no blood or shit in his underpants. What you will see is a lovable Hollywood-style eccentric schizophrenic, all exaggerated ticks and twists. That's real exploitation. That's real ego. Yes. He, he was way ahead of his time as far as that goes, because that's standard place now. Is it the people 
of uh, the people that are cast or the people who are experiencing the same things and you no longer have Dustin Hoffman playing an autistic person um, or Sean Penn playing somebody, you know. With yeah. I mean, the thing that he kept saying, uh, Corrine kept saying in like Letterman interviews I picked up on was Gump and Gummo, the two big films of the year. (laughs) (laughs) A fellow Hanks hater way ahead of me. Let's see. I have some Google reviews if y'all are. I'm, I'm ready for some Googs. Okay. Suvik Roy gives it one star and says, A movie for psychotics. Most of the five-star reviewers suffer from dementia. I can bet on that. Maria Jamal gives it five stars and says, Gummo is very fummo gummo. It's very fummo. Like fear of missing out? Worked really hard on that. <laughs> uh, Suxies gives it five stars and says, Gummo from six... X nine nine brothers gummo from six six nine nine i i guess it's 69 that's the rapper yeah Yeah. and then that repeats quite a few times which is i guess maybe his reference to like the chaos poem you just repeat it over and over perhaps Um, uh it's too artsy fartsy (laughs) (laughs) you have to say it in the herzog voice he kind of did oh wait is herzog with you oh my god in the studio no, I'm possessed by Patrick Swayze this week, guys. I just watch Ghost. <laughs> Mason Chitwood says, Bria. Chitwood? Chitwood. Oh. God, I'm sure he gets that all the time, poor guy. Oh, I'm sorry. He says, Bria, this movie epic. And JJ Fisher gives it five stars and says, peak fiction, peak fiction, peak, fiction, peak fiction. Which is, I guess, like, I guess that's JJ uh, Fisher's poem. Ah. Uh, is that it for the Googles? Yeah. Okay, good job, Google. Are we taking a break? Oh, uh, previous director. Oh, do you guys I have, have one? Oh, you do. Okay, cool. Go ahead. What do you got? Wait, no, you go ahead. I don't have anything. Oh, okay. Uh, I was thinking maybe like someone hires an investigator to like come see. This is what Frankenheimer would do. Someone hires an investigator from out of town to come see like why all the cats have gone missing, and it's Philip Marlowe. And he shows up in in a field when they're like whipping a dead cat and he like pulls out a gun and he's like pointing it at them. And they're like, why are you? You don't need, you couldn't even tell me why you're doing this. And he like looks behind him at a pile of dead cats and then he shoots. The cat. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> that is art. I love it. I, I didn't really have like uh, a new scene. I was just thinking like Frankenheimer coming onto set and he's like, because uh, he has to take over all these films from other people, like for the uh-huh. train and other things, right? Um, so you co- like maybe Harmony uh, got addicted to crack earlier and he, he's off the set and uh, Frankenheimer comes in and he's like, uh, uh, I, don't, I can't do a Frankenheimer, so I'm just going to make up a voice. Like, uh, so uh, you've got a... You got an albino here. It says a albino with no toes picks stuff up with the bottom of her feet and uh, loves to dance. Loves to dance. Um, hmm. Uh, how I've always wanted to work with Brando. So how about instead we we bring Brando in in whiteface and he'd be dragged in and his head could be really hot and uh, have like a, a bucket on his head. You pour ice on it. How, uh, so that looks good. That, that that's good. And oh wait, there's a. This guy drunk, drunk on a couch with a with a dwarf. Uh, uh, hmm. Uh, he's drunk. He's saying like, "You're not a gay." He's saying like, 
oh wait, it's about identity. So okay, so he's like at a party. All these other guys come in and they they take him away before he can reveal that his his mind's been shifted, his body's been shifted with somebody else before he could find out the uh, the the reveal. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, that's a, we'll go ahead and cut from there. That's a, that's there a you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I do have an idea now off of Jack's um, okay. aftermath of a tornado that the, the he adds a framing sequence to tie everything together. It's uh, an insurance investigator who comes to the town, kind of like um, uh, Joseph Cotton in Citizen Kane. Mm. And and he is the uh, the vessel through which we see everybody's story. So he would have something to try and tie it together more. Yeah, that's probably more yeah. accurate. Yeah, it sounds about right. But it wouldn't be Joseph Cotton. Well, it could have been Joseph Cotton. Still alive? No. No. Neither could have been is, his ghost. Neither is Frankenheimer. Well, I meant at the time. Well, they they well if um I guess Frankenheimer was alive in '97. Yeah, he could have. Will you get me another seltzer water? Sure. While you're up, thank you. You shake it up. No. Good. Been funny if I did though. It would have been hilarious. God, man, that would have just brought the house down, like a tornado. Yeah. B- before we go into Julian Donkey Boy, we we do have uh, an, another advertiser this week. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, our partnership with Conniption Nation Media and their family of podcasts has yielded a number of great opportunities for us and advertisement. And this week, um, they got us a sponsor that is kind of in keeping with the movies we're covering. Mm-hmm. Um, This week, Mitre Appel Adhesive Cleaner is our sponsor. Begun in Istanbul in 1987, Mitre Appel now makes over 100 types of adhesives, sealants, and adhesive removers. They are also second in amount spent on research and development. So if you are still looking for the perfect adhesive and think it does not yet exist, well, it is coming soon. We can glue cats together ass to ass and then remove the adhesive with no lingering consequences, other than awkward looks when the cats later pass each other near the litter box. We have become quite stuck, get it, Mm. to our dominance in the markets of India, Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. And we look forward to becoming your favorite sticky substance or sticky substance remover in America. And I don't really understand this part, but they say, we know you cinema fans are often concerned with sticky substances. Um, If you'd like to make an order online for any of our products, use the coupon code GPUSTICKY69 and get a 5% (laughs) discount. Mitre Appel, for good things to come. Just stick around. Oh, yeah. The money's already spent. On what? Did we? Did we get any samples? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I huffed some of it while I was watching Gummo. It was great. Oh yeah. I thought it was because of the gum and Gummo that that's why they picked us, but I think it's the cats. I think it's the glue. I think it's the sixty nine. Shit! It's all it's all coming together. Yeah, yeah. That's that was that was a lot of deep references there. Thank you for getting all of them. Oh, of course. Are we ready to talk about uh, Julian Donkey Boy? Kareen's, Will the world's ever be ready, Ken? Kareen's follow-up to Gummo, 1999, right before Y2K, the end of the world. Yeah, same year as 8mm, Bringing Out the Dead, True Crime, The Insider, and this would be a year after Ronan. All great movies except for The Insider. What about Spieldog? What was he doing? Uh, was that three-year it- period between Saving Private Ryan and AI? Oh, where he is plotting the murder of Stanley Kubrick? <laughs> Correct. Stay for the conspiracies. <laughs> and Mishima did nothing wrong. <laughs> All right, Julian Donkey Boy. Yeah. First time for both of us. Thomas, you've probably seen it a couple times, right? Yeah, I've seen it, I don't know, half a dozen times. 
Okay. Um, it's uh, of the two, Gummo would be the one that I would default back to. Though Gummo looks a little different now on like a um, non cathode ray tube and on DVD. Is that um, right? Whereas Julian Donkey Boy looks the exact same. <laughs> You're able to find like really good quality versions of both these movies online. Um, legally. Actually legally though this time. Actually legally this uh, time. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is a, a great looking fucking movie. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think most people comparing these two movies, cause like you said, Thomas, they're almost like siblings. Um, intimate siblings yeah once <laughs> um, of, of the two uh i i thought julian donkey boy was a million times better and more successful in a lot of similar similar um artistic goals than gummo uh i, I was shocked i loved it, it yeah great. i think that the difference is maybe one of mood and of age like i have grown to like julian donkey boy a little bit more over the years i mean i think like one's an a plus and one's an a so it's not like there's a lot of daylight between them. But for uh, Julian, I, I think the harder parts for me are, um, well, I guess we'll get into it, the, the, the things that we like and dislike uh, between the two. But it feels a little bit more like an art film than outsider art. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, after Gummo, uh, Harmi Corinne uh, definitely didn't want to... Um, try and script things as much because he thought some of the best stuff that was coming out of gummo was the stuff where he just left the camera rolling. And mm-hmm. so he started to see the three parts of uh screen of a, of a movie. Well, this is his own words for me, each stage, the writing, the production, the editing are equally important. I wanted to make each stage equally unique. I wanted to approach it in a really kinetic improvised way. I worked with a Danish editor, this woman who wore like four scarves and mittens and smoked a pipe. She was really good. I didn't let her watch any of the footage until the, uh, until the shooting was finished. And that that person, um, of course, is Vladis Oskodolter. Perfect pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but no, she did um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and a bunch of other things. Wow. Um, so he worked. He's working with legit people, right? She would also come back and do Mister Lonely. Now that I'm thinking about it. Oh, cool. Well, he had a huge budget on that one. I think that was his, his the biggest budget he's had on any movie. Mr. Lonely. Uh, yeah, I. that's the one that I was thinking of was the one with Herzog, because I guess he's in both of these. And yeah. I didn't realize he was in Julian Donkey Boy until you told me, Thomas. But I also didn't. I thought it would just be like a cameo or like a couple scenes. I didn't realize he was like one of the main characters mm-hmm. and like how and why. I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah. What did you think? Of yeah. Movie? Uh, I, th- I probably will never watch it again, but it's one of the best movies I've ever seen just on first viewing. Wow. I think this is like what I've always wanted a Harmony Corinne film to be like, that's what I thought they would all be like. And this is the one that just that, I don't know. It hit all, hit all the notes for me. Got it. Yeah. So you think it's like quintessential for you? Like everything, whenever you had a preconception of what Harmony Kryn was, this is it. Exactly. And you never yeah. want to see I, it again. <laughs> yeah, right. I agree. Now, do you not want to see it again in the way of like, um, I've, I mean, I guess I've seen it more than once, but after the first time I watched Requiem for a Dream, I was like, yeah, that was great. Never want to watch it again. <laughs> Schindler's List if, and Requiem for a Dream. Both those movies I never want to see again, but they're both great. 
maybe like not in the way that like threads would just like was really gross and disturbing and just made me want to throw up and yeah. like shower after watching it maybe not like that Got but it. more like more like like i've always said like shoplifters is the most depressing movie i've ever seen and i don't want to watch it again for that reason and i think maybe the uh julian donkey boy has replaced that on my my top tier of just like just heartbreaking it's Got very it. emotionally disturbing in a way that i was not expecting at all and maybe because you weren't expecting it you had your armor down a little bit right your guard down exactly yeah i was expecting it to be more like gummo where it was it was good and even enjoyable in parts and a lot of this movie is not enjoyable a lot of it is really hard to watch great so, so thomas you did some research on this i'm i'm really curious about the the guy who plays the titular Julian. yeah you and brimmer but before we get to that uh how about we get a letterbox review so we have a sense of what we're we're talking about oh a synopsis yeah, yeah. let me get that for you i think the one for julian donkey boy they actually didn't screw up but i might be wrong uh did you review it did i review it yeah uh no but i read the i read the description julian donkey boy undiagnosed untreated and generally untethered schizophrenic julian lives with his pregnant younger sister pearl would-be brother would-be wrestler brother chris sympathetic grandmother and severely depressed german father it's not that bad. It's kind of yeah. accurate. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like that could be an NBC sitcom, family sitcom, or maybe <laughs> yeah. NBC, uh, Friday night family sitcom yeah. from the nineteen nineties. Yes, with Tom Hanks. <laughs> yep. Uh, Julian uh, it, it suffers from schizophrenia in the movie. Um, the titular character uh, Harmony based it off of his uncle, and he actually wanted to cast his uncle, but he couldn't get him out of the mental institute. So you mm. and Brimmer would go visit and, and interview the doctor. I think he also worked for a few weeks uh, in mental institutes to get a better sense of um, cadence and delivery. I think this is like, uh, we go ahead and say it, like one of the best performances I've ever seen of an actor. I, I was certain that it was uh, an actual schizophrenic because um, I worked with... Um, when I was in residential, I worked with a schizophrenic for a year and he, his mental faculties were a lot lower than, than Julian's as far as intelligence. Um, but it was, it was so real, the performance that I, I was, I was shocked when I looked up the guy's filmography and he's been like a bunch of stuff like, in like train spotting. And, he's like an actual, you know, and he's Scottish too. Actor. He mm-hmm. genius, like probably one of the best performances outside of maybe, um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and the master that I've seen the last 25 years. Yeah. I, another reason I think this hit pretty hard for me is one of my, uh, good online friends is an undiagnosed schizophrenic man. Uh, and I've had lots of phone calls and conversations with him and he is like, Ian Bremer, that's his name, right? His performance is like just completely a hundred percent spot on yeah it, there are times it is 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 eerie not to not to bring up strozek again but that was a, you know he's an actual bruno s an actual like mentally ill homeless man that Herzog cast as the lead character in his film and yeah i just assumed that this was the same same way until afterwards yeah and to have something so improvised uh, as this movie clearly is and to, to have that performance within it and be a piece of everything else uh, remarkable piece of um, artwork 
yeah, the entire I, movie. There were two deleted scenes. I don't know. You guys probably didn't see it because you didn't have the DVD. But the um, one, I understand why they cut it out. Um, it's uh, you get a little bit of it still in the movie, but it's um, they take the uh, the blind or that that troop of people that Julian looks after, uh, predominantly blind people, uh, vision impaired people, uh, out to a swimming pool, and it's like an extra like. 45 seconds in the film. But one of the great things you get with that is the changing of the audio as the camera goes underwater. Um, this is a very tactile and sensory, well, I guess tactile is just your, your uh, sense of touch, isn't it? This, this movie kind of operates and fires on a lot of the different senses and the lack of them as well, along with like, like uh, a sense of understanding of the world around you. Um, so that was one part that was cut out. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting that's cut out is, uh, there's a scene where Julian's with the priest, uh, doing the confession and the priest, it seems like it's real. Maybe it is like you and Brimmer's really in the confessional with the real priest. And the guy hands Mm -hmm. him a, uh, an address at the end of it for some help. He actually, the next scene uh, that they cut was Julian going to a psychiatrist with the address from the church. And you get a lot more of um, like Julian talking, like going to visit his mom and the, the psychiatrist pushing back, like what's real, and what's not real for you. And it doesn't really service the film. I understand why they cut it. Like it's a little too didactic. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's saying things you can infer throughout the film. And it's like a good two minutes and it's an amazing performance by by uh by Bremer, but it's just not and you get all the improvised because you almost don't know if the psychiatrist actually knows that he's not interviewing a, psychi- uh, a schizophrenic or not right he might not uh the, the psychiatrist a male doctor might not realize that yeah i i can see why that would be unnecessary because one of my my worries going into this knowing just generally what it was about is that it would be like i was afraid there'd be some sort of like dream sequence or nightmare sequence or showing schizophrenia as like very literal, like people standing around yelling at him and stuff that, uh, beautiful mind, a beautiful, exactly. I was just about to say, uh, a worse movie or a movie with an Oscar bait performance or something would, would do. And the way schizophrenia is portrayed in this movie as something just completely confusing is done in a way I've never seen anything ever filmed before. I mean, like the, the rapid cuts and the the one thing that really stood out to me is there's a sequence where he's with someone towards the beginning and it's one of the sequences where it's using stills and then the audio kind of not lining up with it and a couple of the stills are julian in the foreground and then behind him there's a person that he's with kind of looming over him and it's very subtle but that's like a really quick thing of just how he's perceiving the world in that moment is there's someone right behind him and it just throughout the entire movie is doing so many clever things like that on a vi- visual and audio level. And it just never, it, it's just, I don't know. I've never seen anything like it before. It changes the way that you process the world a little bit afterwards. Yeah. The, the scene where he's talking to Chloe Savig, however her last name is spelled. And and she's like his pretending to be his mom. Yeah. It's so uh, great. They're on the phone. Um, they're on the phone because it's a landline, and you just have to pick up the phone to be able to, to be on the same line with each other. So she's mm-hmm. upstairs in her room, and he's downstairs in a chair. It's uh, it feels so lived in. Um, like maybe that was something that his uncle did. I don't know. Yeah, it it 
cuts really close to uh, something that feels familiar if you've ever worked with people with schizophrenia. Yeah, the whole Hitler down in the basement scene with the gun um, was based off of his his uncle. But what, yeah, that the phone call scene's really remarkable as well because you can he's high functioning, but he also just like he has the uh, the preoccupations with things. So that she's like, "Oh, I'm a dentist now," and he's like, "Are you a policewoman?" Like it's like he he can't quite hear what she's saying, and then slowly coming along with it, he's like, "Oh, I'll floss every day. I'll floss every day. I'll, I'll floss every day." Like, right. uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's phenomenal. It's, it's great. But, uh, speaking of, did we talk about, uh, dream sequence? Yeah. One of the responses that Harmony Crean said was, this is surprising to me. He said that he hates Fellini, uh, because it's like a cartoon. <laughs> and I was surprised. Like, I was like, oh, what? And yeah. Um, uh, like Mike Kelly, the guy who did the Sonic Youth dirty, or he, he did the art sequence that they Sonic Youth used for the dirty cover with the um, stuffed animals and then his own photo as amongst them. You know what I'm talking about, Ken, at least? No. Yeah, I do. Okay. He interviewed Harmony Kareen, and he says, like, uh, it's not unusual for people to do odd things in reality. So you have, like, a realist film and strange things happening, and it doesn't seem surreal. In traditional narrative films, there's a shift in style, typically, where the image gets fuzzy, and you see it as a shift in point of view, like a dream sequence. And Harmony Kareen says, like, I hate that shit. That's why I hate Fellini <laughs> because it's all like a cartoon to me. It's not based on any kind of realism. I don't care about it if it's not real. And then that's awesome. Mike says, "That's funny. If I had to compare you to anybody, I'd compare you to Fellini." <laughs> <laughs> and they got in a fight, right? And then yeah, they, they filmed didn't... it. Uh, yeah, and then it never was released. Aw, uh, bummer. Well, that's an Uwe Boll connection. Fighting your critics. Oh, that is. <laughs> Um, I, speaking of Chloe, Sav- Sav- yeah, Chloe, um, Chloe S as she's credited oft, um, terrible taste in men, <laughs> but, um, I, th- I actually think her performance was maybe more the standout of the movie to me. I think that's, I mean, I mean the main performance and her song's performance are both amazing, but she was really the thing in the movie that like surprised me the most, like how, uh, I don't know. I don't know how you play. I don't know how you go about playing a character like that. Um, but yeah, she did it perfectly. Thought she's the highlight of the movie. Yeah, say, I guess say a little bit more about that because I think it's interesting to see her interact when she's buying the baby clothes and they have the hidden cameras to be able to do mm. so and how much she's in character. Um, and when she's talking to the blind skater, the young, the young skate, uh, young lady that um, uh, Julian mainly takes care of like you can see uh yeah you can see that there's definitely a character there but i'm not sure yeah i don't know if the performance is good or not (laughs) Hmm, i i think she's great as well and it's very subtle because obviously her brother has some issues both of her brothers have some issues but the implication is that that there's something a little off about her yeah, and it doesn't over oh, it doesn't overplay it so much where it becomes like a, like a tick like oh this person has you know maybe uh, some developmentally delayed mental processes right um, yeah she's great and I think that credit to to Corinne as well for uh, how he presents that character because her relate it's I mean all the relationships oh. with the father her saga are like very complicated um, but 
hers, I think, being the most because she she seems like the least of like the targets of his uh, abuse, but she also cares for her brother deeply, but never like steps in to stop anything or even say anything when all of it's going on in front of her. It's very interesting, very layered. Yeah, or I'm yeah. thinking about her uh, orchestrating the wrestling match between um, Julian, the jibber jabber, and uh, the brother, and just her like trying to be the glue that holds the family together. Not that the the dad's not there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the mom's there. That the mom's still the mom's not there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I do love <laughs> two things that the younger brother Chris says. One of them is like, yeah, during that, like, what's your wrestler name? He's like, Chris, I'm a wrestler. <laughs> We're wrestling. And the other ones, whenever Herzog does the ski, uh, whatever, like the, he was on some type of professional athletic ski team and you had to stand on a water tumbler and then reach down and pick up a cigarette with your mouth. And uh, he does it, but he doesn't stand back up, which is implied but never said. And uh, Herzog's like, no, you have to to stand back up. And then you smoke the cigarette and you smoke like a man and it's victory. And uh, Chris is like, I don't smoke. (laughs) And Herzog's like, you'll learn. (laughs) Yeah, Chris's literalness also is not – so over the top that you're questioning maybe that the whole family has some genetic problems. Yeah. Right? They're not, they're uh, not like his, his wrestling scene with the garbage can. Uh, I don't know. We've, we've seen the two of the best wrestling scenes I've ever seen are in the two movies we're talking about this. Inanimate week. objects. Garbage. Yeah. Can, air. <laughs> but they're both amazing. And then Herzog has like this weird rant about how he doesn't want plastic in the garden. Get out plastic them. All of <laughs> all of his like mannerisms and dialogue in this film are just so off. Like they seem like from someone who has watched a lot of Herzog and a lot of Herzog interviews, he is playing an utterly deranged character that has no basis on uh, the reality of him as a person, which I really appreciate because i honestly didn't know if he was really that good of an actor or not because everything else i've seen him in he's just playing himself so he's he's his character so good in this yeah his performance so how did kareen get him to be in this well herzog really liked gummo and uh helped uh yeah support him and and was down like i think he they ended up meeting in california sometime whenever herzog was in the states and yeah he's like yeah i'll definitely do a film with you. I guess that was a good enough experience. Cause yeah, like you say, he becomes the priest in uh, Mr. Lonely. Right. But the, uh, and then the dogma 95, like uh, Von Trier and Bentenberg uh, reached out to harmony to be a part of their group. So it's, mm. it's interesting. Like his star was definitely rising at the time of Julian donkey boy. Like people, like he was at least amongst People who like film and critics. So I, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, people who enjoy good film, <laughs> uh, and, and they, uh, yeah, he was definitely being sought out. So I, I'd like to talk about the the visuals of this movie because it was Dogma '95. So Jack, do you want to tell us what that means? Like any Dogma '95 film, he broke pretty much every single rule. <laughs> Because you actually can't make a Dogma 95 movie, like it's impossible. But you're supposed to not show any death or dead bodies on screen. It's supposed to be all handheld. 
Um, no, only props that you find on location. Like you can't make or buy props, and you can't use music stuff. unless it's occurring in this scene. That's yeah. right. Uh, so th- this was shot on on video, right? And Mostly, then transferred, yeah. Transferred to film to because, sixteen millimeter, and then blown up to thirty five. Yeah, because you you still get the film quality of the twenty four frames per second. Not right. So it doesn't have the video. Um, Herky uh, jerky. Yeah, it doesn't move in that weird. It moves like people on film. Um, but uh, I would like to talk about the visuals of this movie because uh, a lot like Gummo, I think a lot of the visuals he employs here has been saturated in regular popular culture since as an aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both these movies, I think, hugely influential. And it's weird at the time that they they pretty much both got a critical drubbing for some segments of, you know, mainstream culture. And still now, I mean, these movies, uh, they're cult classics and very influential, but they still are like, if you just look them up, they're like 30% on yeah. Roddy T's and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, fairly phenomenal. These, both these movies watching them back to back, considering they're now what, 25, 25, 23 years old. Yeah. And not just like the, obviously the visual techniques to convey confusion and everything being more cohesive than maybe say natural born killers. Uh Um, Besides that, it just looks beautiful. The grain is amazing. All the, 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 uh, the sunset and blue hour stuff that you get um, the, the, it's very, like very deep blue and red hues. A lot of the film, Mm -hmm. it just, it looks beautiful gorgeous it's absolutely perfect it is kind of a weird feint to make a movie that's so obviously using a lower form of technology than you're used to um but then within that aesthetic uh doing it so well well and he even does things like he'll shoot a lot of the stuff through glass right to give it an even extra layer of um distortion so like he'll shoot it from a window across the street like looking at the mailman or the letter carrier go he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. The mailman loves me. The mailman loves me not. And like while he's doing that, you're like watching it through the glass as opposed to outside the glass. And so multiple shots, you could have done it closer or you could have done it somewhere else. But he's looking to have that distortion, which is amazing for like just the high, high-fi, low-fi, uh, low-res, like just aesthetic. Like uh, mm-hmm. almost going to... Um, what are those characters you like to collect, uh, Ken, using a cryptocurrency? Oh, my NFTs? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the gorillas, the monkeys, the tigers, uh-huh. all of those. Yeah. yeah. Uh, monkeys, two of my favorite bands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, so it's not just the, it's like he, he, he was thinking through it and he's like, okay, so I have the Dogma 95 things I have to do. I'm going to, I want a bunch of cameras on this. I want to do things spontaneous, you know, with a lot of spontaneity and like, like even more so than Gummo. What else, like, how can I help justify some of that? And he's like, oh, uh, a lot of blind characters. Hmm. Hmm. Like, I'm going to talk about the ability to see and to, and seeing also is a metaphor for understanding of things. Uh, that the, One of the most heartbreaking things to hear is that girl uh, talking to uh, the Chloe Savania character while Julian tries to sell a pair of um, skates that he made. There are slippers <laughs> with skate bottoms to uh, the Jewish kid who's eating ice cream to try like trade them. Um, but yeah, Pearl, um, 
the Chloe character is talking to the blind skater and the blind skater says something like, I used to think I could see pretty well. You know, I thought I just had like a little bit of bad vision, but it really turns out that I couldn't see anything at all. And yeah. it's, it's just so crushing. Right. That's pretty profound. And uh, so the, I, I think uh, the amount of confidence to go into a movie like this with uh, so many complicated performances and to kind of improvise, I guess a lot of it. Mm. Um, so there weren't, it wasn't like the awkward stilted parts that were obviously scripted from gummo. I mean, all the stuff here is, is pretty seamless and of a, of a part of a scene, but a whole lot of confidence. I mean, he's what, 25 years old when he made this movie. Yeah. And uh, like you and like all the other actors have to trust you as well. Right. Yeah. Because you're not doing elaborate setups. It's not like you have the apparatus and the machinery of uh, of money behind you saying, okay, we're going to spend a day setting up this uh, this one shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to rehearse throughout the whole thing. And I know exactly, like, this is exactly what you need to do. Um, Brimmer was saying that like uh, Harmony has a whole movie in his head. It's very apparent. But uh, Eddie's going to give you direction, but he's not going to tell you what to do. Right. Yeah, uh, super impressive. And also the the tonal balance to be able to do, um, I think also more so than Gummo, uh, a scene that is so hilarious, like Herzog telling the story of Dirty Harry and kind of like getting some of it wrong (laughs) and saying that that real poetry is hilarious, but he's also saying it because he absolutely despises uh, Julian's poem which is clearly julian kind of like actually literally as like a cry for help like trying to tell them that something's wrong in the only way that he can and just how herzog just dismisses it in a really funny but also really crushing way so much of the movie is like that where it's it almost should be so surreal and ridiculous that it is funny to a point but it just i don't know how it is as heartbreaking as it is but it's impressive well, it's it's like the the Chris and his exercises going up the stairs. The first time you see him crawling up the stairs and running down, it's, it's funny, kind of funny. But yeah. then by the last time, it's just this uh, crushing sameness of being stuck in this little house full of uh, dysfunctional people. Yeah, but he's doing the same stuff. But because it happens later in the story, and you've you've spent ninety minutes with them, it, it's really sad by the end of him doing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's genius. I think the other genius thing to do, um, and I'm curious to get your take on it, is how he open decides to open the film. You open the film with Julian finding the turtle, and he's going to take it home to his dad because he thinks his dad's going to like it. But it's the uh, it belongs to a little boy, and the little boy says he can't do it, and you see his uh, Julian react like very violently to that, mm-hmm. and you see the like the snot dripping off his nose. And he's just so, and then like the first, uh, first act of this film is Julian as maybe a monster, uh, washing, like taking the the bath and like creeping on his sister, looking through the bars of the, uh, the barristade of the, uh, the staircase Mm -hmm. and not really knowing who, like starting the audience off with one of the most horrific things you can do, child murder, and then not knowing where this is going to go towards the end. And then I always forget the ending of the film. I always think that it ends with the little girl saying that she can't, you know, she didn't know that she couldn't see very well. I forget about the last 
last act of this film, the last 15 minutes with Julian on the bus and Julian underneath the sheets. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So a little bit of a Four spoiler. Uh, and this is the question I guess I have for you guys is, um, uh, so you do have the conversation between um, the Chloe character, the mother figure, um, and the blind girl. And then shortly after that, she goes and falls on the ice and, and miscarries. Is not intentional? Ooh. Or did something happen while she was skating and then she fell because of it? Yeah, it's hard to tell from the shot itself. And I don't know if that is the... Um, of the budget of the film and the, and following the dogma rules or if it is intentionally ambiguous or what, what happens there exactly. Because if you take, if you take the little girl saying um, like, I didn't know what I didn't know until somebody told me as like, she's uh, having realization that her child might have the condition that Julian has and doesn't want to see that happen. Whoa, that could whoa. be a, a something precipitating it, but I don't know if that's her character or not. Wow. I didn't even think of that. I just assumed it was an accident. That's really interesting. Um, interesting. The fall. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, Thomas, that is a great point. Um, but that actually tracks pretty well. Yeah. I guess if it were a different director, <laughs> they would have spelled it out a little bit for us. Like the kid, uh, the, the blind kid would have said it and then, um, Chloe S could have looked to the middle distance with her finger on her chin thinking she could have looked into the camera and said, I might have to kill this baby. Yeah. It might be a donkey boy. <laughs> oh yeah. What's the, uh, tell, uh, what's the title from what, what's the originally it was called, um, like the Chronicles of Julian. And then, um, the one of Chronicles the, of Riddick. So one of the yeah, and they, they didn't want to get confused, so they changed the title. <laughs> it's a little bit like Manhunter, like why they decided to call it that, because there were too many um Dragon movies. Yes. Right. Uh they didn't want to confuse it with uh Asian cinema. Um no, but uh somebody called somebody was talking to um Harmony who maybe had read the script, and I think it was like a uh somebody whose music he uses in the film. Mm-hmm. And he said, um, "You should call it. You should call it uh, Julian Donkey Boy." And he's like, "Yes, of course." <laughs> I changed well, it to it Donkey Boy. Right it has the right number of syllables, where it just kind of has that perfect number of syllables for a movie. Julian Donkey Boy. Yeah, huh. six syllables just rolls off the tongue. I don't remember six silly bowls. <laughs> there was a donkey, <laughs> fetid calf. Um. um Here's something I don't, uh, I guess, the thing that I I always wanted to like more and I still don't quite like, but it sounds like you might like it, Jack, um, is the Herzog performance itself. Or not, maybe not the Herzog performance, but the Herzog character and trying to understand what I'm seeing or the character mm. itself. I had a, um, to, again, go back to high school around the time that this happened. I had a friend who was an amazing artist, um, uh, comic book artist. Um, and after his mom died, like a year or two, uh, like before a new woman, uh, senior of high school, his mom had died. And whenever he came home as a senior, he wasn't allowed to have a car. He had to take the bus back to the house. He had to sit in the shed 
outside the house until his dad came home, which was like a few hours later. And like, I, I guess I go back to stories like that whenever like just authoritative, authoritative dads. Um, but in this scenario, like Chris was the reason that the mom died. So that would have been, I think Chris is probably like 16, 17 years old. So it's not like mm-hmm. Herzog's grieving at this moment in the same way. Most likely, I don't know. I haven't had a spouse die, um, that anybody knows about and I haven't <laughs> changed my name, but, um, yeah, I, I got, what's, what's, can, do you have any insight there? Do you see like, what's like, why, who or what or why of the Herzog character? I think the the answer to that is in the scene where he tries to get Chris to put on the dress. Ten dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> and dance with him um, because he's constant. He's berating Chris the entire film for not being manly enough and trying to train him to do this great thing. But then ah. he also wants him to put on the dress, which is a complete contradiction. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I would have to. I mean, I don't think I really understand that character but it seems like there there are a lot of layers to that somewhere and that a smarter person might be able to understand yeah like harmony crin yeah and the and and the the, it's it's up to 20 bucks now (laughs) (laughs) um we haven't talked about the supporting cast at all i mean outside of like the professional actors in this right yeah so jack uh, other your top five movies with a black albino straight from Alabama. Go. <laughs> Shit. Um, I can only think of one at the moment, <laughs> but it's my favorite and my least favorite. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I like all the supporting characters in this, uh, including the guy who puts cigarette throws cigarettes into his mouth and, and pretends oh to my swallow God. them. Yes. So funny. I that sequence goes on for so long, and it is, it, it, I I I don't even know what to make of that. That was something like, the only thing I can compare that to is like Twin Peaks: The Return. Mm. There's that one scene where the bullet goes through the diner, mm-hmm. and then the lady starts screaming, yeah. and the kid starts throwing up everywhere. Yeah, that's the only other thing that I've seen that is like that. Well, there's a Just there's like, a piece of audio during that scene which reminds me of every time I watch Superman. So if you watch Superman, like when the first the first one, the Donner version, whenever he's out flying and people are saying like, "Oh, what's that?" Oh, and there's a there's a some, you can barely hear it, but there's a woman who says, "Of course he's Jewish." Um, <laughs> I love it. And, and in this movie, uh, whenever they're doing the cigarette thing, somebody says, "Great act for a bunch of blind people." <laughs> and it's just like it's just oh amazing yeah like what are they seeing like they might see a little bit of it but not like it's not coming across the same way that it is to us as the audience watching uh yeah a magician uh, i don't even know what to call his magic or his act but he throws a bunch of cigarettes in his mouth and swallows them and then brings them well, back out i still done. smoking it's so gross and he, he keeps throwing in more too. So he starts off with like one and then he goes up to like, he's smoking 10 at a time. And like a pack almost. Yeah. Well, there's... So the, the, um, the outing parts of this movie where he, he go, they go bowling. Um, there's like the little, uh, little dance and the performance mm-hmm. of the cigarette guy. Um, also, um, I mean, I have experience uh, taking people to those as well when I worked with, you know, those folks. Um yeah, it really captures in in essence that you don't norm- normally see. Um, 
it's not, they're not looking, the movie's not looking down on these people. They're not put them on a pedestal or anything. It's, it's just, that's the stuff that they go to for outings and they have these special dances. Um, I went to a couple of them. They're, they're pretty fun. Um, uh, cigarette smoking, but also performers, um, DJs, people come up and do dances like they're in the community. Um, yeah. And Kareem, Kareem does a good job of, of capturing that. It's, it's also something you don't normally see because uh, most movies would lean one way or the other of either sympathy or patting themselves on the back for showing the diversity. Everyone give yourself a pat on the back. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, how do you feel about the religious element throughout this film? I was reading about that afterwards and I guess I, I was so by the, the church scene towards the end, I was so wrapped up in the film that I didn't even really, uh, really get that all that much i didn't i don't know i did not understand that at all but uh i mean if you're a church and you can't get uh, a schizophrenic in there and believing about ghosts and whatnot um i don't know you're not a very good church <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's like your baseline <laughs> yeah what do you think thomas uh well yeah i don't know like it's i mean i can understand uh, that it's just part of uh, America. Uh, a lot of a lot of people believe in in the Christian um, religion, and uh, everything around them. It looks like they're in a neighborhood that's uh, predominantly non-white. So yeah. I guess it makes sense that they like they would go to the church that's nearby, even though Julian goes to confession, which wouldn't be going on there at like a gospel mm-hmm. spiritual church. Um, but there's a moment like, yeah, in Ian Brimmer's eyes where you could see him like trying to process what the guy's saying. Right. And it's scary at some level. It's like, here's, um, yeah, I'm going to share this. Uh, so I met a schizophrenic woman once, um, I, we would go, uh, as, uh, young kid, like teenagers, uh, early twenties before we could go out to a bar and drink and just kind of ruin our lives. Uh, uh, we'd go to a Denny's or locally something called Jim's, which is like a Denny's and just order a cup of coffee and waste waitresses time and waiters time getting refills of coffee and just sit there and write and read. And it was before there was really Starbucks and all this other stuff, right? Like it was, everything else was closed. There's nowhere to go to hang out. We'd go there. And the schizophrenic woman one night looks over and is like, what are you reading? And I'm reading like an anthology, like Northern anthology of literature or whatever. And I'm like, uh, whatever. And she's like, oh, you like to read? And she came over and started talking to me. She was probably in her mid-20s or so. And uh, she started talking about how her twin brother was Jim Morrison, but was born like five years later. And four-hooved angel came crashing through the through the sky into the earth and released her after her mom had masturbated mm-hmm. with um, a twig that Satan had ejaculated on. So... Like, uh, didn't start off with, with that, right? Like started off under, like, I was like, oh, this is, you know, just a cognitively normal, this is another person in, in Denny's. And then slowly I realized that, oh no, this person, um, has schizophrenia or something. I'm not a psychiatrist has, has something going on, which is not having them differentiate between reality and non-reality. And I felt terrible, right? Because I didn't know, I didn't have anything to, I don't know if she was going, she was afraid to go outside because of electricity, um, whenever she slept, she didn't like to sleep under any power lines. And I didn't have anywhere for right. her to go, right? Like I'm, I'm 17, 18, maybe 19 at the time. Just didn't really have any resources, know where, where to like send her or how to help her. I didn't have a house of my own. I've, um, so I went and I, I told my mom about this like the next day. 
was like, man, I had this weird thing that happened. I don't know, like where, what I should do the next time if I see her again, because I'm going back to that place tonight because it's a small town. There's nothing else for me to do at night. I'm going to go back there and probably read and have coffee. Maybe she'll be there and I can offer her something. And my mom said, um, so I told my mom the story about like, yeah, she was saying like things like, uh, yeah, this four hoofed angel came crashing through the earth to, to like crack open the earth so that she could be released. And my mom stopped me and she goes, wait, angels don't have hooves. And I was like, oh, shit, mom, you don't understand the story I'm telling you. This woman's crazy. And you you believe everything that she was saying up until that point. So there is something about religion that, yeah, like you said, Ken, if you can't convert a schizophrenic person, yeah. uh, you might be doing it wrong. So I think that there's something that really is- interesting in the film where, yeah, you just can't really tell what he's processing and how he's processing it. Because he's not a bad guy. like, And even Brimmer said that that's how he was trying to portray the character, as somebody full of love. That's why he's able to forgive Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As long as he doesn't use mommy's titties. <laughs> uh, I don't think any Korean I will watch will top this one. I can't I can't imagine so. Um, but I'm excited to, to watch some of his other stuff. I'm, I'm excited to watch, yeah, um, Spring Breakers. And- <laughs> I, I think I'm going to watch Mr. Lonely. Well, it is interesting because Mr. Lonely, seen it? I think, still, no, it still has the his largest budget, even more than Spring Breakers or uh, Mr. Beach. Bum I think it was like eight million. And it, it's, but it uh, that was the movie that he made after Gummo and Julian Donkey Boy, which didn't do much financially, but obviously positioned him as somebody where, uh, you know, finan- finan- financiers um, thought this guy has something, and we're going to put eight million dollars into his next movie or that he's um, like sober again like i think, I think it was his yeah. no i'm seriously i think it was a project that helped show that he um he was back to being somebody they could trust with with money and production mm. yeah it didn't last long did it uh well we'll talk about that maybe next week but um <laughs> Yeah, if you've never seen uh, that and Trash Humpers, which didn't really have a wide release, Trash Humpers is like taking Gummo and going the other direction with it. Um, okay, very- I might watch both of those before our next episode, but maybe that'll be too much, Kareen. Maybe I'll get sick of them. So one thing I did do for bonus material this week is last night I watched another movie that came out in 1997. Pretty random. Um, uh, That's the name of the, the movie? Girls with- no, it's Kiss the Girls with Morgan Freeman and Anthony <laughs> Judd. Yeah. Uh, it, but the the two poles of like uh, contemporary modern, you know, uh, cinema where, you know, a thriller made by Hollywood and then um, Gummo watching those in the same week. Um, you, you could be hard pressed to tell that they came from the same art. Neither of them look like they are, are similar in any way whatsoever. And one of them's really good. Yeah. Kiss the Girls. Yeah. <laughs> I had the same experience because I watched for the first time Ghost, which somehow won an Oscar for Best Screenplay. And supporting actors for Whoopi Goldberg, right? Uh, I think she got nommed. I thought the other win was for um, soundtrack somehow, but maybe maybe I'm, I'm incorrect there. But they no, won, I think sure it won two Oscars. It did win two Oscars. I can't remember what the other one was. Pretty sure it's Whoopi. Okay. I'm going to look it up. Jack does Googles. But I'm going to look it up. As far as a film like where all the wrong decisions were made, I, I can't think of a better. F- and it was number one in the box office that year in 90, I think, when it came out. The difference between it and Julian Donkey Boy couldn't be greater. Uh, 
Ghost, uh, Whoopi Goldberg did win Best Supporting Actress for oh, Ghost. Good, good. She played Ghost, the wolf in Game of Thrones? <laughs> she really transformed herself. <laughs> I don't have any Google reviews for Julian Donkey Boy because there aren't any. No, what about Letterboxd reviews? There aren't really we, any we need, You know, Ryan gave uh, Julian Donkey Boy two stars on what? Letterboxd. Yeah, what the fuck is wrong with him? Also, everything I heard from Ryan is that Gummo is the best thing since sliced bread. And Julian Donkey Boy is terrible. And I, I, I found the uh, Julian Donkey Boy to be much better. Well, and yeah. even Let, you, how about we do this, Jack? Next week, we'll get him on the podcast to defend himself. Oh, put him on trial. <gasps> yes. Yes. Or we could get him in a boxing ring. We could box him. We could we wrestle could him. We can out plastic him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good idea. Let's put him on trial. Okay. Yeah, because he gave. I think he has Gummo as five stars. Which is, I mean, I, w- I, I don't think it's quite that good, but I th- that's fair. Yeah. I, I'm I, not offended by it. I'm not offended by it. Either. Well, here's, here's how yeah. you could have made Julian Donkey Boy better, okay? So you have a crazy person, right? Uh, who goes to see a priest? Is that right? Is that what I'm understanding here, what I'm working with? Okay, okay. So why is he crazy? Well, maybe he has PSTD or PTSD, right? Okay, he's been in the war, right? So he has like post-traumatic stress disorder. And okay, how about right before that, okay? How about right before you have him go to the priest, you have him play a game of solitaire, okay? Mm-hmm. And then maybe he mugs the priest for his clothes and then he becomes a sniper. Okay, so that's good, right? He's That's good? Oh, wait, wait, wait. You have, uh, a, you have a blind skater? You have an ice skater? Okay, well, how about we put that, that sniper on the <laughs> rooftop over there, okay? Yes. Yes, I think this is all going to work. And then uh, he's coming home with a dead baby, maybe on a bus? Just make that a train and we're good, okay? We're good. Yep. I think we did it. We made the perfect movie. Yeah. Well, more than likely, cops would show up at the end and they would think that it was because he stole the baby, but it's actually because he killed the kid in the opening scene. Or he, did he? Because that never comes up again. So that could have been a delusion. It could have been. Yeah. Well, the uh, yeah, any any conventional director would feel the need to explain that opening scene. Yeah. No Google reviews, huh? Nope. God damn None. It. There's a Roger Ebert review which you could read. He he gave it a three out of four, and he didn't like the uh, he didn't like the cigarette smoking scene. Why? I don't know. Ask him. Pull out the Ouija board. <laughs> <laughs> See what Whoopi yeah, Goldberg's we'll doing these days. Maybe she can channel them. <laughs> uh, that is it for our first Harmony Crin episode. It was a great one. Thank you, Thomas, for picking this wonderful director and. Opening my eyes to these wonderful films. Same. Yeah. So next week we'll look at uh, Spring Breakers and Beach Bomb. One of which I'm really excited for. And I I will probably be on that episode. I'm going to try. Yeah. If you, if something goes wrong during your surgery, we'll pull out the Ouija board. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Social media, all the links are wherever you saw this check out our twitter for christopher mcquarrie responding to oh yeah tweet about the train yeah that was pretty cool yeah that was Uh, badass yeah of course thank you weird ai for the theme song yep yep and thank you sam peckinpah for the sound clip that opens the theme song yep in case anybody's wondering it's not harmony corinne it's not john frankenheimer it's sam peckinpah and uh ryan see you in the ring yeah in the courtroom yeah which is We'll have a ring in it. Yeah.